Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 141. A Family at War, Part 1. Michael Paleologus was the greatest member of his family. He was strong enough to keep the empire together, and he was strong enough to keep his family under control. Once he was gone, his family let the empire slide away, and then turned on itself. This ensured the empire could never recover, and it was doomed to fall. The Paleologi spent too much time at war, but they spent most of it at war with each other. While they fought with themselves, their enemies laughed at them and slowly dismantled their empire. Andronicus Paleologus was a good man. He was a very good man. He was very religious and he wasn't cruel. He didn't spend all the money and he didn't spend all of his time enjoying himself. Unfortunately, he didn't have the strength or common sense of his father and he didn't have the ability to juggle the balls. One by one, the balls came crashing down and the empire crashed with them. Andronicus had never supported his father in the union of the churches and he soon cancelled it. He was terrified of dying while being banned from worshipping as his father had been. The Orthodox Church was delighted of course, but the Church of Rome was not. Andronicus also went to visit the blind John IV of Ascaris to apologise for the fact that his father had blinded him when he was a boy. There's no record of what John said, but one doesn't think that he's going to be very forgiving. Andronicus realised there was very little money coming in and he needed to cut costs. Unfortunately, cutting costs to Andronicus meant getting rid of soldiers and sailors. He completely disbanded the Imperial Navy, which Michael had started to rebuild. He hardly had any troops from within the Empire, and he got rid of the most expensive mercenaries until the number of men in the army was so low that anyone could just walk in and invade. Realising there were not enough men, the Emperor employed cheaper soldiers who weren't really soldiers at all. A whole bunch of tramps, layabouts and refugees were enlisted into the army. They had no discipline and no will to fight. It was as if there was no army at all. Andronicus appointed his son Michael as full co-emperor and put him in charge of the army. But Michael IX was not the answer to the empire's problems. Before long, both the eastern and western borders were under attack. In the east, the Seljuk Turks had been shattered by the Mongols and now various Turkish tribes were battling for supremacy. While doing this, of course, they began to overrun the imperial territory in Asia Minor. Pretty soon, one of the tribes would become the most powerful in the region. Its leader and his successors would bring disaster to the empire. It was the West which caused Andronicus more headaches in his earlier reign, though. Charles of Anjou's son, Charles, succeeded to the throne on his father's death in 1285. He proved to be just as unfriendly towards the empire. He allied himself with Nicephorus, the despot of Epirus, and pretty soon Epirus was not being ruled under the watchful eye of the Emperor of the Romans, but as a client kingdom of the Kingdom of Naples. The Serbs also stirred up trouble, and the Emperor had to offer his daughter to the Serbian leader as his wife. The poor girl was only five years old, and spent the first few years of her married life in a nursery. The Empire was by now so weak that the maritime provinces of Venice and Genoa managed to fight a war with each other in imperial territory. In 1296, 75 Venetian ships sailed up to the mouth of the Bosphorus and attacked the Galata, the Genoese colony in Constantinople. They set fire to the harbour and burned the Galata and a lot of Greeks' houses to the ground. The Genoese, of course, were not going to take this without retaliating and they proceeded to destroy all the Venetian buildings in the city and kill any Venetian they could find. The Venetians were extremely annoyed by the attack on their people and they accused the poor emperor of being on the side of the Genoese and demanded cash to make them feel better. Andronicus didn't even have time to decide whether to pay up before the Venetians arrived again and set fire to one of his few remaining ships. They soon made peace with the Genoese, 
but still demanded payment from the Empire. Not long after, they attacked and occupied an island in the Sea of Marmara, which was being used as a camp for people escaping from the Turks in Asia Minor. The Venetians threatened to kill all of the Greeks on the island, unless Andronicus gave them back all their privileges. Andronicus gave in. By 1302, Andronicus had been on the throne for 20 years doing quite a bad job. In 1302 though, things would get much, much worse. In 1302, the Battle of Bathaeus would be fought. It was quite a small and quick battle, but its consequences would be just as awful for the Empire as those of Adrianople on Banzakert. In 1299, a Turkish emir declared his small kingdom to be independent of the Seljuks. He led his people since 1281 and gathered quite a following. He began to encroach on imperial territory and Michael IX led an army out towards the emir's forces. The emperor reached the town of Magnesia with a very large army, large enough to frighten the Turks into retreating to the hills. Michael wanted to follow them and take them on in battle, but his generals were not so keen, so Michael waited. This was a very bad mistake. The Turks were surprised and pleased that the Imperial Army had not followed them and began to raid the countryside and towns. Michael, stuck in Magnesia, did not act and before long was surrounded in his camp. The Imperial soldiers disappeared and Michael fled to the sea with a load of refugees. Andronicus sent another army, mainly made up of Alan tribesmen, to take on the Turks. On the 27th of June 1302, the two armies met in battle on a piece of land called the Plain of Bathaeus. The 2,000 men from the Empire were met by 5,000 Turks, mostly cavalry. The Turks charged and broke the line of Imperial troops. The battle hardly lasted a few minutes before the Imperial commanders were fleeing to the safety of Nicomedia, the soldiers not far behind. Before long, the Turks had conquered most of Asia Minor, although they didn't bother trying to take the walled cities like Nicomedia and Nicaea. The Turkish leader knew it was only a matter of time before he could take the cities and reign over the whole of Asia Minor. He was a much better leader than anyone the Empire had to offer and his people were loyal to him. The people were so loyal that this man would be the founder of a new empire which would overtake all of the imperial provinces in Asia Minor and eventually all of Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, Macedonia and Albania. His name was Othman and his empire that he founded would last until the 20th century and be named after him. The rise of the Ottoman Turks had begun. In 1302, though, the game wasn't finished. Soon after the defeat of his army in Anatolia, Andronicus was visited by a man called Roger de Flore. Roger was an adventurer and a leader of men, a bit like Robert Guiscard. He and his followers were from a part of Spain, and they were called the Grand Company of Catalans. They were pirates and mercenaries, and they spotted an opportunity to make a bit of cash from the suffering empire. Roger offered the services of the Grand Company for nine months, but demanded a massive amount of money. Andronicus could have paid his own army less and had a great fighting force, but he'd already got rid of most of his forces, so he had no choice. He paid up. Roger de Flore was given the title of Megas Dux and married the Emperor's niece. Now, the Catalans were definitely only in it for the money, but it has to be said they did a pretty good job. They inflicted quite a few defeats on the Ottomans and the Turks retreated. But it was different this time. All previous mercenaries had been under the command of an imperial general. Roger de Flore refused to be led by anyone and took command of the whole campaign himself. He refused to do anything the emperor told him to do and instead did exactly what he liked. They were very successful though and took back most of Western Asia Minor. This was fine while the money was coming in, but everyone realised it couldn't last. The Allen cavalry soldiers found out the Catalans were getting twice as much pay as them, so they packed up and went home. More Catalans turned up and demanded to be paid as much as their countrymen. 
the Catalans were not very nice to the Greek citizens, and pretty soon the Greeks wondered if they were any better with this lot than they might have been with the Turks. Everyone was wondering what the Catalans might do next, when events in the West made the decision for them. Roger de Flore received an urgent message from Andronicus that the Bulgarians had invaded Thrace. There was still money to be made from this weak old emperor, so Roger marched his men into Thrace and camped near the city of Gallipoli. When he got there, though, he received a message from Michael IX that he was no longer needed. Roger de Flore was very annoyed. These silly emperors had called him away from Asia Minor, where he was doing very nicely thank you, and dragged him to Thrace just to tell him he wasn't needed. Not only that, there were some other Spaniards in Constantinople who were trying to persuade Andronicus to give them cash in exchange for fighting for the empire. Roger protested and demanded to be the ruler of Asia Minor as a vassal of the emperor. A vassal is a king who rules some territory but only on behalf of a more important king. Andronicus agreed and promoted him to the rank of Caesar. Roger decided to go and visit Michael IX in Adrianople to improve relations. He was welcomed with huge celebrations. Roger stayed in the city for a week, attending sumptuous dinners held in his honour and generally having a good time. On the day before he was due to leave, there was a massive banquet with lots of laughs and merriment, after which Roger de Flore and all his Catalan nobles were assassinated. Yeah, they were all killed. If Michael IX had planned all this, then he was a very, very silly man. When the Catalans, still encamped at Gallipoli, heard about it, they rose up and plundered Thrace. They even invited the Thir Turks to join in. Towns, farms, houses and anything else which were in their way were destroyed. Thrace, once one of the most fertile parts of the empire, was left virtually deserted. Only the walled cities like Adrianople were safe. Michael IX raised an army to defend the province, but it was a rubbish army and he was a rubbish leader, so it was crushed by the Catalans. The Catalans then left Thrace and marched down to Athens, where they set up their own little duchy. More territory had gone, never to be returned. It took decades for Thrace to recover. Andronicus managed to throw the Turks out of Europe and confine them to Asia, but most of Asia Minor was gone for good. He also had to give some ports and his daughter to the Bulgarians in exchange for peace. Philip of Taranto, son of Charles II of Anjou, captured Durazzo. In 1309, the island of Rhodes was captured by the Knights of St John, who, escaping, who were escaping from the Holy Land. The empire was getting smaller and smaller. Right, so the empire is in chaos and is getting smaller. There are enemies on all sides. Most of the enemies have stronger and better trained armies than the empire does. The Turks are finally united under a strong ruler. So now it's time to pull together. It's time for everyone in the empire to work together. Maybe if there is unity, the empire has a chance. And so what happened? The Paleologi took the opportunity to fall out with each other. They were at war with each other for quite a lot of the next 70 years. Michael IX, a brave but hopeless soldier, was living as a private citizen in Thessalonica. He had suffered defeat after defeat, and though still only in his 30s, had decided to let others have a go. In 1316, his eldest son Andronicus was raised to the rank of co-emperor. Although he had no power, it was clear that he would reign once Andronicus II and Michael IX were dead. Unfortunately, Andronicus was a party boy to match Lucius Verus. He had a lot of girlfriends, but he suspected one of them of having another boyfriend as well as him. One night in 1320, he laid a trap for the rival. When the young man walked by the girlfriend's house, he was attacked and killed. Only when the poor man was dead was it realised that he was Andronicus's younger brother, Manuel. Michael IX was devastated when he was told, and it said he died of shock. He'd been a willing but poor emperor for 26 years, and was only 43 when he died. 
Andronicus II was utterly furious, and he named his second son Constantine as heir, and disowned Andronicus. The result of this was civil war, just when the last thing the Empire could afford was a civil war. The younger Andronicus refused to accept he was no longer in line for the throne, and so he travelled to Adrianople and raised a revolt against his grandfather. His second in command was a man called John Cantacuzenus, a man we will have much more to say about in the next chapter. Andronicus II had no wish to fight his grandson, and they came to an agreement. They would rule together. Andronicus II in Constantinople, and Andronicus III in Adrianople. Andronicus III was a headstrong man, and there was no way the peace with his grandfather could last. Over the next seven years they fought more than they were at peace, and they argued more often than they agreed. In 1328, Andronicus III had support from all of the Thrace and most of Macedonia, and when he and John Cantacuzenus went to Thessalonica, they were greeted with cheers of delight. Old Andronicus was unpopular and tired. When Andronicus III and John Cantacuzenus arrived in the city on the 25th of May 1328, he put up no resistance. He signed a deed of abdication, and Andronicus III became the sole emperor. The elder Andronicus had been emperor for 46 years. They had not been good years. He didn't have the intelligence and diplomacy of his father, or the courage of his son, and his reign was not a happy one. He lived for a couple of years in Constantinople, before leaving to live out his life in a monastery, where he died aged 72 in 1332. Andronicus III was much more energetic, and he was 31 by the time he took charge. He'd left the partying behind, and was ready not only to lead the empire, but to fight for it. He could still be headstrong and make bad decisions, but at least he knew what he wanted. He was a huge improvement on his grandfather. Andronicus III also had John Cantacuzenus with him. John refused to take any title. He was even offered the rank of co-emperor. He just wanted to help and serve his friend, but it was clear to the people that he had real power. Andronicus III, like Andronicus I, started off his reign by rooting out corruption and improving the legal system so that judgments were fair. Then he turned his eyes outwards. Andronicus thought his granddad's greatest mistake was allowing himself to be pushed around by everyone. Turks, Bulgarians, Serbs, Venetians, Genoese and the rest had all been stroppy with the old emperor and he tried to come to agreements with them. This had to stop, thought Andronicus. It was time for no more Mr Nice Guy. It was time, time to stop playing nicely. And stop playing nicely he did. The next time the Bulgars raided, Andronicus sent an army to raid Bulgaria. This was so successful that the empire got back the ports they had lost a few years before. When the Serbs tried to take more of Macedonia than they already had, Andronicus sent in an army to fight. Pretty soon he'd managed to obtain a truth from both Tsars, and the western borders were secure, for a while. This gave Andronicus and John the chance to move against the other small Greek states. Epirus and Thessaly were taken back and made into imperial provinces. Andronicus built a small navy and strengthened the imperial position in the Aegean Sea. It was while doing this that John Cantacuzenus struck up an alliance and then a friendship with Umur Pasha, the Turkish emir of Aydin, one of the small Turkish emirates not yet overtaken by the Ottomans. Umur was known as the Lion of God and spent most of his time harassing Christians in the Aegean. He helped Andronicus and John retake some of their lost islands. Umur Pasha would have a part to play in later in the civil wars of the Paleologi. In the east, though, things were not going so well. The Turkish advance was unstoppable. In 1331, the unthinkable happened. The city of Nicaea, which had been capital of the empire just 72 years earlier, fell to the Ottomans. 
Andronicus tried to make peace with Orsan, who had succeeded his father Othman in 1326. He didn't want to lose Nicomedia as well. Sadly, in 1337, the Ottomans took the city anyway. All of Asia Minor was now gone, except for a couple of unimportant cities that the Turks hadn't bothered with. They would soon fall too. Andronicus III Paleologus had shown that his empire was not to be pushed around. He had no choice but to accept the loss of Anatolia. There was nothing he could do about it, and he rightly concentrated on keeping his enemies at bay in Europe. By 1341, he he had stabilised what was left, and there was an army and a navy ready to defend it. The empire wasn't strong, but it was no weaker than most of its neighbours. The Paleologi, though, will not learn from Andronicus III. When he rather inconveniently dies, the family at war will tear itself and its poor empire apart. Next time, we'll see how that happens. Till then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.